Well, I want to do a little uh, a little test to start here. So I'm going to need you uh, to stand up in a second, okay? And I want to kind of lay out some categories here. Uh, if you are someone who is, uh, we would consider a youth, you are in junior high or high school, <clears throat> stand up and stay standing. All right, there's our, there's our one youth. The rest of them are sleeping apparently somewhere. Oh, okay. Uh, if you are uh, a college student, stand up. Are there any college students? Okay. <laughs> are you related? No. Um, if you uh, if you are the parent of a child who is 18 years or younger, stand up. If you're the parent of a child 18 years or younger, stand up. Okay. If you are uh, if you are someone who is a grandparent, stand up. If you're a grandparent, stand up. Okay. If you are uh, if you are someone who has ever worked in the children's ministry of the church, you've served in the nursery or are teaching Sunday school or work with the youth, uh, stand up. Okay. If you uh, if you work with young people in some capacity, maybe you're a, maybe you're a school teacher uh, at the uh, at Emmanuel, uh, stand up. Okay. If you are uh, planning to have kids one day, stand up. Okay. All right. If you if you are aware of some small people walking around this church, stand up. I want everyone to stand up for a second. <laughs> okay. So they no longer want kids. Is that what you're saying? Okay. All right. All right. Stand up. I look. Here, here's my point. Uh, we are we are the body of Christ. Uh, the way the body is supposed to function is that we are not in this life on our own. No man, no woman is an island, but we together function as the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, one of the responsibilities that we all have, whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a grandparent, whether you teach the youth or not, whether you teach the children or not, all of us in here have a responsibility and obligation to raise up the next generation. Of course, that primary responsibility goes to the parents. But we do not let our parents kind of out there on their own. We as the body of Christ, all of us, have an important contribution to that. And so this message this morning is for all of us. So you can be seated. The question that I want to ask and answer is this. Who is waiting for our kids? We have our kids in our churches and in our homes for you know, maybe 18 years or so. And then they graduate from our houses. They graduate from our schools. They graduate from our youth groups. They graduate from our church. And they go off often to college. Maybe they go into the workplace. And the question we need to ask is who's waiting for them? Who is it that they're going to meet when they walk out these doors? And are they ready and prepared for the people they are going to meet? I grew up in the church. My parents got saved when I was a baby. So I spent the first 18 years of my life in the church. I was one of those kind of model Christian kids. A kid that went through all the programs. The kid that when he got to youth group was a, was a youth group leader. In, in, uh, when I was a junior in high school, I had made a decision to go into full-time ministry. And I had been an intern in my, uh, in, my, uh, in my church's youth ministry. And then I went to college. And my freshman year in college, I took Philosophy 101. And that's where I met this guy, Dr. David Lane. And in Philosophy 101, we talked about the big questions of life, right? We talked about life's meaning. We talked about God's existence. We talked about religious views. We talked about science. And what David Lane liked to do is he liked to, he liked to present a topic and then open it up for class discussion. And so we would kind of knock these ideas around. And as I began to kind of give my input in class and join the discussion, it became apparent that I was a Christian. And Professor Lane picked up on this. And so he would begin to single me out in class. Now, he wasn't one of these kind of angry type professors. He was a very charismatic, very popular professor. But he began to single me out and challenge my Christianity. 
And so there were times in class where he would bring some objection against Christianity. He'd, he'd kind of lecture on it for five or ten minutes, lay out that objection. And then, before there was any class discussion, he would look directly at me. And he'd say, Brett, we know you're a Christian, so we'll give you a first shot at this. What would you, how would you respond to this? What would you say to this objection? Now, thankfully, at that point, I was smart enough to know that I didn't know anything. And I didn't know how to answer his challenges. I didn't have anything to say, so I would decline. I would say, no, Professor Lane, I, I, I don't have really anything to say at this point. I remember he walked closer to my desk. He put his hands like this, and he'd say, come on, Brett. Come on. You're a Christian. We know you want to say something. I didn't know Professor Lane was waiting for me. And so, now I knew these challenges were serious, but I didn't have really much to say, and I certainly didn't want to uh, say things in, in the front of my classmates and embarrass myself and embarrass Christ. So I would decline, but I would go after to his office, and I would try to debate him in his office, and he would just dismantle me. And I remember one time in particular being in his office, he sat with me for about a good hour, and he said, Brett, do you have a, do you have a Bible on you? Of course, I was the good Christian kid, so I had a Bible in my backpack, right? And so I pulled it out, and he said, okay, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. I turned to Matthew. He said, turn to the back. Turn to the resurrection story in Matthew. So I turned the resurrection story. He said, then get out a piece of paper and a pencil. I want to show you something. And so he had me divide the paper into three columns. And then we, he carefully read through the resurrection account with me. And we wrote down the details. And then he said, okay, now turn to the book of Mark. And we turned to Mark, and we did the same thing. We read the account, and we wrote down the details. And they said, turn to the book of Luke, read the account, wrote down the details. And he showed me the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he said, Brett, right here, I have just shown you a bunch of contradictions in just Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'd grown up 18 years in the church. I had never heard this before. No one had shown this to me before. I had no answer. I had nothing to say. I wasn't prepared for who was waiting for me. No one had talked to me about the nature of eyewitness testimony. Because that's what the gospel, that's what we claim the gospels are, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are eyewitness testimony. And of course, when you talk to a cop, I have a friend who's a detective, and uh, the, the, he says that when he, when he interviews eyewitnesses, he does not want their stories to line up perfectly. In fact, he tells a story about how he, had, uh, he got to a crime scene. They had taken the witnesses and they had put them in the back of a squad car together. And by the time he had got to them, those witnesses had done what? They had talked about the, uh, the encounter, what they saw. And when he interviewed them, they all kind of basically said the same thing. And he said that didn't give him reliable uh, source of eyewitness testimony. Instead, what he wants, or he wants to separate those eyewitnesses as quick as possible, and then he wants to interview them separately, and he wants to hear their differing perspectives. And no one told me that these are what we call apparent contradictions. They're not real contradictions. They're apparent contradictions. They're just differing testimony, which is what you would expect from different human perspectives. But see, I didn't know that, so here I am caught off guard because I'm not ready for David Lane. And I remember walking out of his office with fear and trembling, thinking if David Lane is right, if the PhD, the smart guy is right, what has the church been hiding from me? Why haven't I heard this before? And I knew I had to find answers, and it rocked my faith. Daniel Dennett is, uh, is a part of a group of men called the New Atheists. They are atheists who have, in our, in our culture, made a lot of noise. But he teaches at Tufts University. He's a professor. Listen to what he says. He's talking about our students. He says, they will see me as just another liberal professor, trying to cajole them out of some of their convictions. And they are dead right about that. That's what I am. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. See, he's telling us, hey, when I get your students, I want to rip those convictions that you've kind of put into them and replace those. He's telling you and I exactly what he wants to do as a professor, as an atheist professor. 
I'm going to show you a video clip. This is a professor at the University of Oakland. And he's doing a little promo video for his upcoming class, Evolutionary Psychology. I want you to just listen to how he promos his class. My name is Todd Shackelford. I'm the chair of the Department of Psychology here at Oakland University. Uh, I'll be offering a course this summer called Evolutionary Psychology, uh, PSY 315. He froze. Well, we can, we, we, we can skip the video clip if we need to. If you click on it again, we'll start and playing. Evolutionary psychology is the area uh, of my expertise. It's a class that essentially looks at how to apply evolutionary perspectives to human psychology, and regardless of whether one's religious or not. Uh, religion certainly is something that uh, people, you know, scientists, scholars, and the general public um, ought to be familiar with, how people arrive at religion. religious beliefs and principles. The question is, how is the mind built? How is it designed by natural selection such that it motivates people to hold and to have beliefs for which there is no evidence? Okay, we got the volume just in time because that's the statement I wanted you to hear. So what they're going to do in evolutionary psychology is they're going to look at, through the filter of Darwinian evolution, Look at how the mind is built by natural selection and see if that can explain the origin of religious belief, right? And what did he say? We want to see how uh, the mind is built in such a way that human beings come to hold beliefs for which there's what? There's no evidence for. There's no, absolutely no evidence for this. So how, how does evolution explain this for us? So here's my question. My question is when our students graduate from our churches and they go off and they, and they have a class like evolutionary psychology, are they equipped and ready and prepared to engage with those ideas? Are they ready for that? Are they ready for Dr. Todd Shackelford? Here's the reality of the college campus. What we find is that one in four professors is a professing atheist or agnostic. Now that number is significant because that is much larger than the, than the um, general population. So every, about every fourth class, they're going to have a professor who is a professing atheist or agnostic, and I guarantee you they'll teach from that perspective. You have 6% of professors who say the Bible is the actual word of God. That means 94% don't. Don't believe that. 51 professors reported that um, they have unfavorable feelings toward evangelicals, towards Christians. And so what we, what we know about the college campus, and I spent a lot of time uh, working with students on the college campus, what we know is that there's a powerful intellectual challenge to the faith of young people, to their Christian ideas and convictions. There's a powerful intellectual challenge, but that's not the only challenge. There's a second challenge. It's the moral challenge of the college campus and the moral challenge of the culture. And so you look uh, and, you, and you listen to reports that come from college campuses. And I'll just give you a quick snapshot. You had Northwestern University about a year and a half ago where this, uh, this made headlines. There was a professor on this public university campus who taught a very popular human sexuality class. About 700 students enrolled in this class. And one day after class, he decided to bring in a couple of sex workers from Chicago to do a live demonstration for his students on the publicly funded university campus. Okay. You have uh, schools like uh, Yale University. Yale University has an annual uh, sex week. In fact, a number of Ivy League schools do, Harvard and Brown and, uh, and, and many colleges actually around the campus. I was just in, the, in Tennessee and some of the, the folks there told me that the University of Tennessee was about to host their annual sex week. This is where uh, student organizers oftentimes will bring in, quote-unquote, educators. You know the educators they bring in? They br they'll have maybe some of their professors speak, but then they will have, they'll have porn stars to come in and do talks. And then you should see the kinds of topics that are taught on the campuses during these annual sex weeks. 
I remember being at the University of California, Berkeley, picking up the school newspaper and reading a, 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 an opinion piece by one of the students. She was a graduating senior, and she was reflecting back on her four years at Berkeley, and she was specifically reflecting on the co-op housing. Co-op housing is when uh, the, the, the guys and the girls share not only a house, but they share rooms. And she was talking about specifically how at first she was uncomfortable with kind of all the sex that was happening in this co-op house. And then how eventually she was enlightened and she saw this as just a free expression of love. And she came to embrace the co-op living. These are just little snapshots of what we see on the college campus around the country. And you can look these up for yourself. And I could share story after story after story. I have a document on my computer where I kind of list a number of these kinds of stories that are, are, are we constantly hear in the culture. But look, it's no longer just w out there in college. This stuff is happening on our high schools and our junior high campuses. Uh, you have the Philist Philadelphia School District, the public school district, uh, last year, uh, 22 high schools installing condom dispensers at their schools for their students. You have uh, stories like this all the time. Um, you have uh, the New York School District kind of caught covering up just how many of the uh, morning after pills they distributed. They were distributing morning after pills. These are pills that girls take after they've had uh, 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 intercourse. In, you know, if they're, if they're afraid they're going to get pregnant, they take this as uh, a means of birth control, which what it does is it aborts the... Uh, of the embryo, and so you had the public school district in New York distributing these, and eventually it came out that they had distributed over 10,000 pills to girls in their schools. You hear individual stories like Carla McKinney, she was a 23-year-old high school teacher, who was, uh, who was, uh, she was put on leave for material that she was putting on her Twitter account. Of course, her students were following her on Twitter, and uh, she was posting uh, sexually explicit material uh, drug references about her own personal drug use, and this is someone who's teaching our students. Okay? These stories go on and on. You have the Massachusetts Department of Education. You have California instituting new uh, rules, new laws that allow transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice. Okay? Uh, you, have student, you have high school teachers who go after the faith of their young people, uh, who are their students. Here's one example near my house. Capuchano Valley High School uh, history teacher James Corbett was videotaped by one of his students attacking Christianity, saying things like this. When you put on your Jesus glasses, you just can't see the truth. And so it's not just off at college now, but it's when our students walk out the front door. Right? Right. Uh, Charles Potter, author of uh, the book Humanism, A New Religion, talks about this brilliant strategy. He says, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every American public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools, meeting for an hour once a week, and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? Brilliant strategy. If you can educate the young people Monday through Friday, you will win their hearts and minds. And so here's the question. Are, are our students ready for these kind of challenges? Well, when we look at the data on this, we discover it's clear, the, clearly the answer is no. This book, Soul Searching, is a major study done on the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. And uh, what they did is did in-depth interviews. They surveyed students all across the country. And they found a couple of key things. Let me point out the key findings. Number one, they found out that students across the board, across religions, U.S. teenagers are incredibly inarticulate about their faith. They don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe it. They, they can't articulate it. And it's not, that, it's not that this is just kind of characteristic of teenagers. No, they found teenagers to be very articulate when it came to areas that they were carefully educated in. So when it came to STDs, they're articulate. When it comes to pop culture and what's going on in pop culture, they're very articulate. But when it came to their faith, they knew almost nothing. 
couple of years after the book was released, they, they released a DVD that included some video of some of the interviews. I want to show you a clip. from a, It's a Christian girl who's grown up in the church. And I want you to listen to how this interview goes. There are evangelical teenagers who don't understand much about their faith and who are pretty, uh, by their own tradition standards, pretty lame. Teens could be articulate, uh, but when it came to their religious faith beliefs, uh, most were totally at sea. Uh, They couldn't articulate hardly anything that they believed. Again, it just seemed to be... uh, something they took for granted. It was just in the background. And for some teenagers, our questions about, you know, what, what are your religious beliefs seemed to be the first time that any adult had ever asked them, what do you believe? My name is Michaela Page. I am 16. I'm in the 10th grade, and I live in Nampa, Idaho. I grew up in the Nampa First Church of the Nazarene my whole entire life. I started from when I was a baby until now. I think I have a really good relationship with God. I I pray with Him every single morning on the way to school. I I try to do my devotions every single day. It's really hard because you know it's your life. You have a job. You have school. Things sometimes you get tired and you just want to go to bed. It's not like He requires. He just would like us to follow Him, follow in His footsteps, do the right thing. But everybody's going to make a mistake. But that's what the good thing about God is, is you can ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive you right then and there. Um, I don't know. They just asked her um, what she thought I, about Jesus. I get it. I think, I don't know. Um, I, I don't really know. Okay, uh, little technical glitches there. That's why you guys got to switch to Mac. I told you. No. Um, the interview was with this girl, Michaela Page, who, right, who says she's grown up in the church. You were able to hear the audio. She's grown up in the church. She's committed. Does her devotions. She describes herself as having a close relationship with God. Then later on in the interview, they say, "How does Jesus fit into all of this?" And that's when she says, uh, she gets all uncomfortable and she says, well, I, I don't know. What do you think about Jesus? Uh, I don't know. And what researchers found was that, that this, this was the norm. Now, maybe a couple of, maybe other students could kind of get out some cl- Christian cliches. Oh, well, Jesus uh, died on the cross for our sins. But if you push them beyond that at all, there's nothing else they can say. They are completely inarticulate. Now, think about this young girl, grown up in the church, says she has a, a good relationship with God, but then she can't articulate anything about Jesus. Well, how, how can she describe herself as someone who has a close relationship with God if she knows nothing about Jesus? And this was normal. Students are completely inarticulate about their faith. Now, what the researchers found, they, they found also that there's this kind of this myth that like teenagers are just, they go through some kind of wholesale rebellion against their, their parents. They found that in America, uh, the, the, uh, the teenagers in America are usually the very conventional, particularly when it comes to religion. They go to church with mom and dad. So the researchers said, where are they getting this from? Where are they getting this from? This is the faith that we are passing along. This is what we are teaching or not teaching. So, let's do some math here. You take inarticulate, uninformed Christian students, you put them on a secular, hostile, aggressive college campus, how do you think that turns out for us? Not very good. And uh, we, look, we can look at all the data that suggests students walk away for a good period of time, if not forever. Many of us know stories of young people who have grown up in our church, maybe grown up in this very church, who have now walked away. Some of us have kids in our own homes who have struggled once they've left our homes. Now, here's what they found in soul searching. Second key finding, they asked students who they had encountered. By the time they encountered them in high school and those students had already walked away, they asked them, why did you walk away from the faith that you grew up with? 
Here's what students said. They left primarily because of intellectual skepticism and doubt. By and large, that was the number one reason that students gave. Students said things like this. It didn't make sense anymore. Some stuff is, some stuff is too far-fetched for me to believe. I think scientifically and there's no real proof. Are there too many questions that can't be answered? So they were asking good questions, probably, and they weren't getting any satisfactory answers. They left because of intellectual skepticism and doubt. Well, you might be sitting there thinking, wow, this was not the uh, inspiring message I was hoping to get this morning at church. <laughs> this is not good news. No, I, I, I hope it's a, a reality check for us. I hope it's a reality check. Now, sometimes the, the, the reaction to something like this, as you hear about kind of the big bad world that's out there, the reaction can be, okay, let's circle the wagons. Uh, let's take our kids. Let's hide them in the basement. Let's chain them up. Let's not let them out there in the world. That's not an option. That's not an option. I think what we need to do is we need to, we need to come up with a, a good strategy. And here's my strategy. Here's the approach I think we ought to take. Don't isolate your kids. Don't isolate your kids, but instead start preparing them so that you can inoculate them. Right? You know what an inoculation is. It's like the flu shot. You take it to protect yourself from getting the flu. That's what we need to do with our young people, is we need to get aggressive and we need to get intentional and we need to come up with a plan to start training our children. And it, look, we cannot wait till they're in junior high and high school. Sometimes that's too late. This kind of training begins when they are one year old, two year old. It begins before they're even born in our own preparation. And then as soon as we have kids, we're thinking about the fact that in 18, 19 short years, they will be out of our homes. And there are things that we can be doing from the beginning to prepare them, to inoculate them. Uh, Paul says this in Colossians 2.8. He offers us a warning. What is that warning? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. So Paul is not warning against philosophy per se. He's saying philosophy according to the tradition of men. Right? False philosophy. According to the elementary principles of the world. Rather than according to Christ. Paul's warning is here is that we should not be taken captive by the false ideas of this world. Instead, we want to take, be taken captive by the true ideas of Christ. And so the solution is to go on the offensive and recapture, recapture young minds with the truth. And for the rest of the time, what I want to do is lay out a very practical strategy that we as a church can implement, that we as parents can implement, that youth leaders can implement, that Christian edu educators can implement. These are four key steps that I think that we can take and we can use in our homes and our churches to start getting our students ready for the challenges of the culture. Because look, I actually don't think we have anything to be afraid of. Because I think Christianity is actually true. And if Christianity is true, that means every objection that is brought against it will be false. And so we just have to figure out how they're false and show how the arguments fail. And so I think we can actually confidently go into this. Four steps that I think we need to take our students through. Elevate our expectations, equip the students' minds, engage them in real-life experiences, and then we have to embody the truth. Let me go through these four steps. Number one, we have got to elevate our expectations for students. I go back to that quote by uh, Charles Potter, right? What can the theistic Sunday schools do, meaning for an hour once a week? Oftentimes... Uh, uh, we will, we will, especially when our kids get into high school, junior high, we'll kind of delegate the task of discipleship to the youth ministry, right? The youth leaders, the youth pastors. But think about it. They have our kids for such a small amount of time each week. They can certainly help and be partners in this, but it's not their primary responsibility. The primary responsibility of discipleship of children and youth is us, <laughs> The parents, we are the ones who are the primary disciplers. 
Now, we need help. We need the youth ministries. We need the body of Christ. But the primary responsibility falls on us as parents. And what we need to do is realize that they can handle a lot more than just an hour a week at youth group. They need that. They need us to elevate our expectations. Think about it. When it comes to their academic success, many of us will put our our expectations way up here. When it comes to their sports performance, we'll put our expectations right up here. In fact, we will put energy and resources and time and money into helping them if they're struggling. So if they're struggling academically, we'll put the extra time in to get them uh, help. We may even pay for tutors. If they're uh, involved in sports, we might pay lots of money for a sports camp to send them to. And those are all great things. But just in the same way as that we have these elevated expectations for their academic success, our, our, uh, our expectations for their, their spiritual development and their discipleship should be just as high. And, and our expectations for what they know about God should be just as high as what they know about biology so they're ready for that test and don't fail it. We need to elevate our expectations. In fact, what I found is that is exactly what our students want from us. This is what they want. Listen to this student, Gabrielle from Chatham University. Uh, this, is, this was a testimony that was, it was, uh, you can see at cpyu.org, the Center for Parent and Youth Understanding. What they did is they interviewed students who had grown up in the church, had gone off to college. They, 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 CPYU interviewed them and said, hey, what, now that you are in college, you, you look at your college experience, what do you kind of wish your churches had done better to equip you for that? This is what Gabrielle said. She said, I was in several youth groups in high school and unfortunately found that youth group was too soft. We played a lot of games, had a lot of fun retreats, but rarely learned about the fundamentals of faith, why we believe what we believe and what it is that we do believe. Now that I'm in college, my faith is under constant scrutiny and always being tested by scientific concepts and the secular slant of most universities. I wish I had been equipped with a more solid justification for my faith, knowing how to answer the tough questions, how to respond to arguments, and how to stand firm in what feels like a storm against my spirituality. What is she saying? She's saying, I wish my youth groups had elevated their expectations for us and given us some solid training. So that's the first thing that we need to do. Notice it starts with us. It starts with us elevating our expectations for young people and realizing they're capable of so much more than we often expect from them. Number two. We need to equip their minds. Equip, we need to equip our young people, particularly their minds. Now, think about it. Uh, we talk a lot about loving God, right? That is central to the Christian life, is that we are in this relationship where we are, uh, have this love relationship with God. Now, what does that look like? What's it mean to love God? Oftentimes, when we think about loving God, if we were to picture what that looks like, We picture it in terms of the affections, the emotions. And so the person who loves God is a person who's kind of passionately worshiping, raising their hands. It's a person who's who's in passionate prayer. Right? And oftentimes love equals emotion. And certainly that is a vital part, I think, of love. I think love does certainly consist of the emotions and the affections. But I want to know how many of us think, when we think about loving God, we think about our minds. How many of us think that loving God also means loving God intellectually? Oftentimes when you you say that in church, people kind of cringe. Love God intellectually. It's not just all about the intellect. Of course it's not just all about the intellect. But it's nothing less. We are to love God with our minds. This is actually what Jesus commanded in the great commandment. Right? Right? Matthew twenty two thirty seven. love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What Jesus is saying here is that loving God requires all that we are. Yes, our emotions. Yes, our will. But yes, our minds. We are to love God with our minds. I think when we, we did a, one of the talks that we did with the students went for about an hour and a half where we went for, through the argument for God's existence, we went through a detailed description of the Trinity. 
And we went through this for an, uh, almost a, it was an hour and 20 minutes with the students. And I think it was we did that and we forced them to use their minds. That was a great act of love for God. Just as much as it is when we, we praise and worship in song. Think about it. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by developing close emotional feelings for Jesus. That's not what he says. What does Paul, of course, Romans 12 is a pivotal chapter in the book. And he's going to say some really important things. And what does he say? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul elevates the mind here. Have you ever maybe looked around at the church in general, maybe look at your own life and you've wondered, gosh, why don't I see the kind of transformation I would expect from people who who claim to be in relationship with the God of the universe? Why isn't there more transformation? Well, maybe we've short-circuited our transformation because we have not brought our minds into that process. Paul here elevates the role of the mind in our spiritual transformation. Central to our spiritual transformation is the renewing of our minds. And so what we need to do is equip the minds of our young people. We need to give them knowledge. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of His truth. Let me break that knowledge down into two key components. We need to teach our young people first the what. The what? What is it that we believe? What is it that we believe about God? That's what we call theology. Theology simply means the study of God. You tell me, is there a greater, is there a greater topic to study than the study of God and who He is? But now do me a favor. Do me a favor on your sheet there. I want you to list for me List for me the attributes of God. Write down the attributes of God. I did Now, look, I'm, just in all fairness, I did this with the students too. So they got tested. Now it's your turn to get tested. Start writing down the attributes of God. What are the attributes of God that you can list? And write those on your sheet. How many attributes can you list of God? Just listing. I'm not even saying describe them at this point. But just list what are the attributes of God. How many can you get down? Well, God is loving, okay? Yeah, we probably all get that one down. What else? What are his characteristics? What is he like? Well, think about it. If you said to me, Brett, hey, tell me about your wife. And I said, oh, well, um, my wife, she's got hair. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a sandy, it's like a brown uh, She's got a couple eyeballs, um, pretty nice person. If this is my description of her, and that's all the detail I can give you, you're going to look at me and go, gosh, doesn't sound like you really know your wife. And if that's all you can describe, I'm guessing that you don't have a very uh, deep relationship with her, right? In the same way, if we don't know much about God, is our relationship with him all that deep? There are, if you look at it, just a standard systematic theology book, most theologians will, 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 you'll get somewhere between 20 and 25 different attributes. And you don't have to answer this out loud, but how many of us came close to listing 20 or 25 attributes of God? How many of us can even get 10 down? If we can only get 10 out of the 25 attributes of God, how well can we claim to know God? But from the very get-go, we can be training our young children with the what? Helping them to begin to know who God is. What is God like? That's the what. After uh, we give them the what, then we give them the why. And I think this really has got to start at probably around fifth grade. Because fifth grade, their minds start to develop. They start to be able to think abstractly. And in fifth grade and beyond, fifth grade all the way through eighth grade, we should be giving them a steady diet of apologetics. Apologetics is the why. 
So we don't want to just teach them what to believe, but we then want to teach them why we believe what we believe. Okay, we think there's this God that exists and he's like this. Here's his attributes. That's the what. But now then the question is, why? Why do we think God exists? And can we do more than just say, because the Bible tells me so? Because our students are going to need a lot more than that when a PhD professor comes after their faith. So do we know the what? Do we know the why? And we give them the what and the why. We give them knowledge. The knowledge of God. That knowledge is transformative. And I think that's a great approach. In fact, I think some of this, some of these insights that I've developed just through being a youth pastor myself, being a, a parent, really come from the medieval view of education, what we call classical education. Classical education says, hey, look, we, in terms of our methodology, we kind of divide uh, our methodology up into kind of three stages. There's the grammar stage, the logic stage, and the rhetoric stage. From uh, the very early ages, our young kids are in the grammar stage. That's when we capitalize on the fact that children are just little sponges. And they have this kind of uh, innocent wonder about the world. And they're asking all the questions. And we capitalize on that. And they have great, they have great powers of memorization. And we just start getting the what in there. At this point, you know, a second grader, a third grader, they're not asking a lot of the why stuff yet. They just want the what. And so we give them the what. We give them that content, that rich content that the church has taught for 2,000 years. And then when they get into 5th, 6th, 7th grade and they start asking the why, the logic stage, we give them the tools on how to think. And then by the time they're in high school, classical education says they've reached the rhetoric stage. That's where now they learn to articulate it. You give them the what, you teach them the why, you teach them how to think, not just what to think, but also how to think, and then you give them opportunities now to speak it to talk about it, to articulate it. And then you will equip your young people with the truth. Let me give you four very practical things, four questions that your students should be able to answer before they graduate from your church. Okay, I'm not just talking to parents, I'm talking to all of us. These are our students. Okay, so here are four key questions. Does truth exist and is it knowable? Does truth exist and is it knowable? A foundation of truth. The next question, okay, what's the truth about God? Does God exist? Do we have any good reason to think that God exists? Number three, if God exists, this opens up the universe to all kinds of possibilities, namely that God has acted. Do we have any, any evidence for miracles? Right? And then, does God speak? Do we have any reason to think that one of these religious books that you know, religions talk about the Quran, or the Bhagavad Gita, or the Book of Mormon, or the Bible. Do we have reason to think that one of these is actually the Word of God? And we, what we do then is we give students the reasons why we take Christianity to be true. Our young people should be able to answer these four questions. Let me give you a tool for this. A great tool is this book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I suggest that our high schoolers read this by the time they graduate. And adults who haven't read it should read it as well. Because what it does is it takes those four steps and, and breaks it up into 12 steps and makes the case for the truthfulness of Christianity. And if we can equip our kids with this kind of knowledge, they will be much more prepared for the professor, uh, professor Lanes who are waiting for them. All right? All right, next step is engage. Look, it's not enough for our kids to come here and, and sit behind the four walls of the church week in and week out. We've got to get them out of the classroom and get this stuff into real life. We've got to help them see how what we teach in here connects to everyday life. So here's some very practical things that we can do. Get on their turf. What's their turf? Well, the modern teenager, their turf is social media. Their turf is music. Their turf is media. Their turf is that screen, okay? So one thing that I have done very practically as a dad of a teenager is I have, I have taken music. My daughter loved music. She always would come home and say, hey, Dad, heard this song. My friends are listening to it. I want to I download it on iTunes. Can we download it? So we had a process that we went through. I said, okay, first thing you do, look up the lyrics and print out the lyrics for me. I want to read through the lyrics. 
This was a, a very purposeful, intentional thing that I wanted to do with her. I wanted her to read through the lyrics, to hear, or to, to, to read, and think carefully through what, were, what was the message that was going to come through that song that she was going to listen to. Because I know when she's listening to it and she's, you know, she's kind of rocking with the beat, she's not going to be focusing on those lyrics, but I know those words are going to be entering her soul. And so she would print out the lyrics, we'd sit down with the lyrics that she printed out, and then we would read through them carefully. And I would just ask her questions. Okay, what is, what does this song say about uh, the purpose of life? What does this song teach you about how to be happy? <clears throat> what is the view of women in this song here? How are we? How are men to treat women according to this song? And we would just walk through it that way. And I get on her turf. And then we, I would help her to see. Okay, how does this match up with what God says? And then we would kind of eliminate songs. Okay, yeah, that's that's not quite the message we want to get in. And then we'd pick other songs that we liked. And it wasn't like, okay, you can listen to Christian and, and you can't listen to non-Christian. No, we wanted to know what was the message behind any song. And so we got on her turf that way. Did the same things with movies. I do the same thing with movies with my kids where sometimes my kids will say, oh, Dad, we want to watch this movie. And I know a little bit about the movie. Or I'll read up about the movie and I'll know that there are particular themes that I want them to be aware of. And so we'll watch a movie but I will have the remote control, the DVD uh, remote control with me, and throughout the movie, I'll pause. And we'll stop, and then we'll talk about it. And, uh, and I don't do it with every movie, okay, because my kids would hate me. Uh, but we'll do it with movies periodically to help them not just sit there and be a passive observer, you know, and just let these images just flood their minds, but I want them to be active watchers. I want them to be thinking, what is the message that's coming through here. What's the message? And I want them to be prepared to engage those ideas. Uh, We take students, through my work at Santa Reason, we take students on the college campuses, and we give them these surveys that are tools for them to get into a conversation with non-Christians. Because often they're not not talking about this stuff with non-Christians, so we help them be purposeful. And we were just on Berkeley's campus with a group from Southern California, uh, we took them to Berkeley's campus. We gave them some surveys. They went on to Berkeley's campus. The students were scared to death. I said, trust me, here's how you do it. And they, we had students who got into conversations with perfect strangers, and those conversations lasted an hour, two hours. And they were talking about the most important things in life, God's existence, Jesus, the Bible. And when we came, brought those students back together and we debriefed them, they were pumped up. Because here they just had a long, the longest conversation of their life with an unbeliever. And it was no longer just teaching in the classroom. It was now I'm talking to a real unbeliever and I'm using this stuff that I've just learned. Uh, here's a challenge for you. Take your students and go visit another, another religious site. Go to a mosque, a Mormon temple, a Buddhist temple. When I was a junior high pastor in Southern California, this is what I did. I knew my students were going to encounter these folks out there in the world, right? And so I wanted them to be prepared. I wanted them to know the ideas of the Buddhists. And so we did a three-week training on Buddhism. We taught our students what Buddhism taught. Then we did a second week on how did that match up with Scripture and gave a biblical critique of Buddhist thought. Then we would do a third week where we'd give them kind of a, a philosophical critique. And these were junior high students. We elevated our expectations and they were able to understand this stuff. And then what we did is I had arranged a field trip to the local Buddhist temple. There was one about 25 minutes from our church. And I had called them before I even started the series, and I called the Buddhist temple. I said, look, i got about 60 junior hires. I'd love to bring them to your temple and have one of your monks teach them about Buddhism. Would you guys be willing to do that? What do you think they said? Yeah, bring them down. And so a monk gave us a full tour of the Buddhist temple. And uh, he answered the students' questions. And afterwards, we sat down in the front lawn there with the students. We thanked our, our, uh, our, our, our Buddhist host. And we sat down and we did a debrief. And I could not get those little junior hires to shut up. Because they were so pumped up about what they just experienced. And they were, you know, we were, we were debriefing. And they're, just, they're talking about everything they saw. And then how, oh yeah, remember when you, you said this two weeks ago, Brett? And they were just completely engaged. We got it out of the classroom and into real life to help train them. And look, these folks will even, they'll come to you. You don't have to go to them. So you can go to mormon.org, go to mormon.org, 
sign up to have a couple of Mormon missionaries come visit you. And uh, we, we, we've done this at my house, where we've had uh, Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door, show up. We've set up an appointment for them to come back. And when, they, when they've walked in, they sit at our kitchen table. I say, hey, do you mind if my family sits with us? I say, no. And so I bring out all my kids. And we all as a family sit there and engage. And I did, have done most of the talking, but I want my kids to sit there and to be part of that experience and to engage and to learn. And so uh, uh, this is a great way. Now, guess what's going to happen? If you invite Mormon missionaries to your, your home to have a conversation with them, uh, what are you going to do prior to them coming? You're gonna, that's going to motivate you to study because you know you got a test. And when you got a test, you've got some motivation to get prepared. Right? That's the kind of thing that we need to do. Um, you can take them to a local science museum if you want to teach them about evolution. We've done this with students. One of the things that we do, we do these unique mission trips. We take students to Berkeley, we take students to Utah, and we give them opportunities to talk to unbelievers. But here's what we do. We give them the truth first, then we expose them to error. And students who come back from these trips just are lit up. And they're equipped. And they're ready now. They're not afraid of a big bad world out there, but they are equipped. Well, let me close by just giving you one last step. You want to get kids passionate? You want to get passionate about this stuff? Get off the sidelines. So many times we sit in our churches on the sidelines, not engaging. Get off the sidelines, get them in the game. That's what this does. And what you and I have to do is we have to embody all of this. We have to live this out. We can't just say, hey, kids, this is what you need to do. We have to live it out. They have to see us out there talking to the unbeliever. They have to see us turning off the TV and instead picking up a theology book or an apologetics book. Now, we're here. Our organization is here to help. We've got great resources. Stand to reason. Our mission is to help you think clearly about what you believe and why you believe it. Go to our website, stand to reason, str.org. We've got a great list of resources. You can connect with us on social media where we're constantly posting the resources. This talk this morning was just a challenge, a challenge to wake us up, to start preparing. Look, we have a free resource. If you want us to send you some free training materials to help you with some of these challenging questions that maybe you don't know how to answer, go out to the table. There's a table out here in the lobby. You can go get one of these cards, fill it out, and we will send you uh, a copy of our regular newsletter called Solid Ground where we tackle tough issues and help you to think through it carefully. That's a free subscription. Just fill out the card, leave it at the table, and we will start sending you free training materials to help you with this. There's other resources out there on the table that will help you uh, and, and equip you. Listen, the people out there like the Daniel Dennett's, the Professor Lanes, they're very intentional in what they want to do. They're very intentional about wanting to dismantle our young people. And so what we have to do is we have to be intentional in here. If we're not intentional in here, we will continue to lose our young people. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to be challenged. Thank you for this opportunity to be equipped. Lord, I pray that you would start a work in every person's heart here and that we would become passionate about the knowledge of you and that we would then be equipped to train up a new generation of young believers who know you deeply, who are passionate about you and who go back into this world unafraid, with courage, but equipped with the truth to bring that truth to a lost and dying world. Help us, God, in this task. We need your help. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.